0: I'll tell you, I am. There um, <coughs> we go. I'll tell you, I'm glad I showed up at church this morning. Um, I'll tell you this too. With Chris and me finishing five years here, we really found, feel we found God's calling. We found our lives uh, being here in this community in Pasadena. Don and Jim. Uh, Who are so active in our community and in this church. And just so thankful that you've uh, accepted us and have stuck with us all these years. And for you. um... All right, I needed to say a few words because I knocked my mic. We, we always do things really smooth. We never have any glitches here at, at Lake. We're a church family. I just wanted to make sure you can hear me uh, today. But th- that matter of being in a place where you say, God, you've made me for this place. First of all, I want to tell you, that doesn't mean you're stuck with me forever. Uh, God also leads people to other places. So I want to say that. But one of my prayers and today's message is really uh, my prayer that you also might find your place in what God is doing in the world. That's what I'm going to talk about. And as I thought, I called it, you see, I called it the good life, according to the gospel of Mark. And uh, I started thinking about this message a long time ago. But as I thought about talking to you about it, it reminded me of a time that I had uh, a long meeting with a group of student leaders back in Chicago. And the student leaders were from our undergraduate college, from our seminary from the uh, law school, and from the graduate school, which meant, I mean, there was a broad range of ages. Some were only like 20, and others were two or three times that. And they had come from all sorts of different backgrounds. Uh, Some had grown up in more urban settings like our own, Some had grown up in suburbs. Some had grown up in rural areas, like I I grew up in more of one of those. Some had grown up in the United States. Others, we had student leaders from the continent of Africa, Asia, and from Europe. So I'm just saying this because they came from such broad, different backgrounds. And I'll tell you, the discussion that we had that day, and the way that our French-speaking West African student put it, we're going to talk about la belle vie. That's what he said, la belle vie, which is the, the beautiful life. Uh, the life the way it's supposed to be experienced. And I wanted each one of the students to talk about how was that communicated to you growing up? Where, where do you find that, that real life that, that you were made for? And I, I'm, just, I'm telling you today, that was the most energized, impassioned discussion that I have ever been in with a group of student leaders. Because they all felt, regardless of the backgrounds, you realize they came from different nationalities, different ages, all sorts of things. They felt like the societies they had grown up in had sold them a bill of goods about how to live the good life. That somehow we had to find or achieve something, they felt, in this world that would bring prestige to them personally or to their family or to their clan. And that's where we're supposed to find our lives. And they said they come and they look at the Bible and they say that that's not where we're supposed to find our lives. The way that this matter played out was different with all the students. And yet the, the foundation was the same. It kind of went like this. So when you when you when you're young, your kid in the school that you're in, you better work hard because you've got to stay ahead of those other kids in your school. Because whether in your tribe, who's going to make it to the very top of the tribe? Or in our our country, you've got to make it to the very top of whatever you're supposed to be doing. And the American student said, you know how that plays out, President, in our our settings. That means when we're kids, we never even play anymore. So that even if sports or anything else, we always have to have training and coaches for everything that we do. Because, you know, we have to be better than the rest around us. So it's not that it starts when you're children. Then you've got to get to the best school, of course. And while you're at the best school, it's all competition. You've got to be better than the other students around you. And then as you get out of school, you'd better get into the most prestigious job possible. So the law school student, I've got to get into the best firm and I've got to become a partner. Uh, The business major, I've got to get into the best business and then I've got to work my way up because I'm going to find a life if I get to be eventually the CEO. Uh, The musician, I've got to become a recorded artist, you know, the very best in the very best orchestra, because we've got to bring honor to ourselves and in some settings bring prestige to our family or to our tribe. And especially we have to make a lot of money. That's where life is supposed to be found. Then, of course, we should get married to a prestigious family, uh, somebody who will further the future and then have kids and then start passing on those same values Onto our kids. And of course, in the midst of all of this, uh, we're supposed to be good people and sometimes go to church. So we'll go to church and, you know, kind of be religious people, but keep living the way everybody else lives, thinking that we're going to find our life in something here. And again, I'm just telling you, if you think I'm energized talking to you about it, you can't believe how energized these students were about that from such different backgrounds. And yet, having been told, if you can achieve this, if you can own this, if you can have this home, if you can get this bank account, you will bring prestige to your family, prestige to yourself, and you will experience la belle vie. That's what life is all about. And I'm here to tell you, it is not. Those things are good. But the message today is, if that's what we live for, if that's what we put at the center of our lives, We're not going to find life there. And yet that's the narrative that it seems like is told us at any period of history and in any nation in our world. And if I'm right about that, and I'm pretty convinced that I am, about that point at least, then I'm sure that the Bible has something to say about it. Because I have found that the big issues that we experience in life, the Bible always addresses. And I think the Bible talks about that one perhaps more than almost anything else. And especially that text that Jim and Don read for us today, Mark chapter 1, verses 2 to 13. So if you have a Bible, uh, turn to that. Because I've begun to recognize that in Bible times, too, they had the same issues. Um, the, The way the Bible would put it, the kingdoms of this world seem to tempt us to think that they can offer us the life that we're supposed to have. So that if we have enough of them and experience enough of what is temporary in this world, then we really find what life is all about. And Jesus comes and he says, no, there's another place where life is to be found. And he wants us to find it. And so the text today takes it up. And there are going to be three very simple points so that we can begin thinking in a biblical, Christ-centered sort of way. The first point is going to be this, that when we give our lives to Jesus, we read this word, that the way you and I look at the world is different from the way that we used to. The world view is this. Once you give your life to Jesus, you and I believe that God has a plan that he is working out in this world. That God is actually actively involved in this world. He is working out a plan in this world. Do you believe that? Number two, then our issue, if we're going to find our lives, the most important matter in your life and in mine is finding our place in what he's doing. Finding our place in his plan and number three, this will not surprise you at all, those of you who come have been here these five years. I am convinced of this, that Jesus is the only one who can introduce us to our place in God's plan. Pretty simple sermon, don't you think? I'm just telling you, it's countercultural. Countercultural. So let's begin. The way you and I look at the world, the worldview, is that you and I believe that there is a God who is powerful, he is good, but he's not out there. God actually is involved in this world and being involved in this world. He's working out a plan in this world. If you listen to the scripture reading, you might ask, where on earth do you get this out of this text? And I'll tell you, you see it in verses two and three, because after you have that title verse that we looked at the whole sermon last week, Mark one, verse one, the beginning of good news. It's all about Jesus. Who is he? Messiah and son of God. Then Mark pulls us back into the prophets. He wants us to know that this thing that God is beginning is a part of a longer-term plan. That as Paul would put it in Ephesians chapter 1, that before this world was created, God had a plan that he was going to work out in this world. And what he does, he pulls us back and he says to the writing of the prophet Isaiah, that actually Isaiah just summarizes something much bigger than he was. He takes us to three texts in the Old Testament. One is in the book of Exodus. Moses, who lived probably 1,400 years before Jesus. One, the very last prophet in the Old Testament, Malachi, probably 350 years before Jesus. And then, of course, the one who summarized that was the one that they considered to be the prophet of all prophets, Isaiah, who lived in between Moses and Malachi. And all of them, he said, show us that what is happening now is not new. God is at work, and he is working out a plan. The book of Exodus, uh, visitors who are here um, The whole summer, we went through the book of Exodus. And one of the main things we learned early on is that when things were happening in the lives of God's people that seemed to make no sense, God was still at work. He was still there. Do you remember while they were in slavery and they cried out to God, this profound little phrase that you find in Exodus chapter 3, God knew. God knew where they were. He knew they were hurting. But he knew much more than that. He knew what He was going to do. He knew that He would not let His people be assimilated among all the other people in Egypt because He knew He had to protect them because through them a Messiah would come. Through them a Messiah would come. So God knew. And then in this particular verse that Mark quotes, it's in Exodus 20, verse 23. He says, Before I take you to your part of my plan, before I take you into the promised land, I'm going to send a messenger ahead of you to prepare the way. That's what he says. says, Mark says that. I will send my messenger ahead of you from Moses. But it wasn't just that. You move all the way up to the very last prophet that is recorded in in the uh, Old Testament to to Malachi. In Malachi 3, verse 1, and chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, written about a thousand years after Moses, God was still at work in the world. That's what the Gospel of Mark is telling us, working out a plan. And what it says there is, even though the people in Malachi's day had walked away from God, being religious but not really following God, God says, I'm still going to work with you. I haven't given up on you. And I'm going to begin a new work. But before I begin that work, I'm going to send a prophet, a messenger ahead, quoting the very same thing, who will prepare God's way. Um, And and, and he referred specifically to Elijah because Elijah was this prophet who didn't die. And everybody thought, Elijah is going to come back again before God sends the messenger, the Messiah, to do the work. And Elijah would be a person who wears weird clothes and eats strange food. Somebody like him is going to come is what the plan says. And then, of course, in verse 3 of Mark chapter 1, he refers to Isaiah, written between Moses and Malachi. Malachi. And Isaiah also said to a people who thought that God had forgotten them and abandoned them. God has not forgotten you. You might not see what he's doing, but God is still here. And he will speak to you. Be comforted, he says. Have you not heard? Have you not known? The Lord is the everlasting God. He doesn't forget. And he is going to send a messenger who will prepare the way for his work to be finished. With all of this, I hope you see my point. I, I wanted to show you this. Because the point is that many times in our lives we look at things that are happening and it seems that that God is far away. We don't quite know what He's doing. Or maybe when we see things we think God is at work here. It looks strange to us. But God is saying, I have a plan that I'm working in this world. And you must learn to trust me in the midst of that. That's the way we as followers of Jesus look at this world. That this isn't just a haphazard world like the existentialists said. That's absolutely absurd. It's not the kind of world that the students talk to me about where it's just a chance thing, that if you get to succeed, you might have a real life. And other lives aren't real lives. It's not that at all. God is at work in everyone's life. There is a purpose for each one of us being made. This is not like those of you who have grown up in in more Eastern kind of religious settings, where where the view of the world is cyclical. It's this process of, of living and dying where karma plays its way out. No, no, no. The Bible's worldview is of linear worldview. God is at work. He is doing something. And what he asks us to do is to trust him. And that brings you then to Mark chapter 1, where he says now it's going to begin. The one that all of this is pointed to is coming. And now somebody is going to come who prepares his way. And it was this man named John the Baptist, verse 4. Now, I just want to tell you this. I want to tell you this. If you had looked at John the Baptist and seen how he was dressed, and if you had gone to one of his banquets and seen what he was eating, you would have thought, this is not somebody, this guy is just strange. This is not the person that we want to to prepare the way of the Lord. But I just want you to know God chooses people that we wouldn't choose to do incredible work so that, as Ingrid said, he receives the glory. I was writing, emailing with my uh, son Brandon about this, and he wrote me an email. And I I just wanted to to quote what he said to me. Uh, So you're saying we have a guy in the desert with a camel hair shirt and a leather belt who eats mostly locusts and honey, and he's going to baptize. In other words, you're saying there's always been a plan, but it's unfolding in a way you couldn't have imagined. And it's involving a cast of characters that you might not exactly think are the A-list. And then it gets really crazy because this camel-haired guy baptizes God in the person of Jesus. Yes, I said. That's what I'm saying. And that's what I'm saying to you here today as well. That um, God is at work in this world. And he often does it in ways we could never have anticipated. He draws in people that that we may not have drawn in. And that includes you and me. And and that if we're going to find the life for which we are made, we must first believe that God really is. That God is working a plan in the world. So we saw it with Moses. we, We saw it with Isaiah. We saw it with Malachi. We saw it with John the Baptist. And now I want to see it with us. Okay, ready? We're going to get to us at last. Our issue. Now here's what I'm praying you'll see. Is that the most important matter in you finding your life is to find your place in what God is doing. Which means we've got to, we've got to believe that God is doing something. And then we have to say, I am yours. And I'll be wherever you want me to be and I'll go wherever you want me to go. Now, where do you see that in this text? Read it through, and I hope you'll go through this week and, and read it very carefully. But in this repeated word of, of repentance, that's where you see it. John the Baptist came, and his baptism, it says, was a baptism of repentance. And repeatedly, this beginning point of knowing God is repentance. Now, I'll tell you, that's a word that you almost only hear in church, right? And I think even in church, we don't know what it's talking about. We, we've minimized it. So you know how most of us think about repentance? That we have a, a few bad points in our lives. Maybe our thought life or some of the actions, or, you know, I, you can think about where you fall short. And we turn away from those and ask God to forgive those. And, and that is a part of it. But then we think we can go and keep living the way the world lives anyway. But this word for repentance is much bigger than that. Uh, the, the Hebrew word is shuv. And the Greek word in the New Testament is metanoia. And both of those mean a complete turning around of the whole of our lives. It means we change our whole way of thinking. The way you and I make decisions, the choices that we make, that the world lives for itself or it says you've got to have more of what we have. And what we do is we turn around from that and say, no, my life is to be found in God. And then these other things, I can just enjoy them, not as primary things, but simply as gifts from God. But God is the one who has to be at the center. It means that we turn ourselves around from self-glorifying people to God-glorifying people. And, and when the world, as the students would say, is selling us a bill, bill of goods, and it keeps wherever we've grown up, It tells us, have more of what this world has to offer. More power, more authority, more prestige, more fame, more money, whatever it is. And you'll find a life. We turn away from that and say, no, no, no. My life is to be found with God at the center. That I want to be wherever He wants me to be. The most important issue in your entire life, if you're going to find life, is finding your place in God's plan in this world. And I think we here in Southern California can see this perhaps more clearly than almost anybody else. Because here we have not everybody, we have a few people who are able to find almost everything they would ever wanted to have. Tremendous success in the media and the entertainment industry and finance or whatever. And yet when we see people who have actually achieved everything that the world has to offer, do we find people who have found their lives? Do we find people who have actually said, this is what life is all about? Have you ever read any of Cynthia Heimel's material? She's a humorist. I quoted this for you once years ago. I want to show it to you again in her book. And I love the title of the book. If you can't live without me, why aren't you dead yet? Isn't that a great, it's a great title? And she looked at people who had found everything they were living for and didn't find life, and she wrote this about them. She wrote about celebrities. I left their names out. Those of you who have smartphones, shut them off. I don't want you to find out which three celebrities she talked about, but I know you're going to anyway. But anyway, she wrote, I pity celebrities. No, I really do. Three celebrities were once perfectly pleasant human beings, but now their wrath is awful. I think when God wants to play a really rotten, practical joke on you, he grants you your deepest wish and then laughs merrily when you realize you want to kill yourself. You see, they wanted fame. It's not a bad thing. They thought that would give life. They wanted fame. So they worked. They pushed. And the morning after each of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose. Because that giant thing they were striving for, that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness, had happened. And they were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. Now, I, I tell you, I am not as negative about People in our own community who have thought that I'd find life if I can just achieve that and then achieved it, worked hard, disciplined themselves, used their gifts and found that that didn't give life. Because the world is just constantly giving this message that that if you have that, if you achieve that, then you'll have life. I I just want you to know that those things aren't bad. They're wonderful things. I, I love it. When in our community we have people who have wonderful gifts of entertaining us in film, in music. Don't you? So thankful when I get to to watch a good show or watch a good movie or read a great book. But I'm just telling you that even though there's a a real beauty in pursuing uh, and using those gifts to the best of the ability God has given you, when you live for that and you think life is found there, it will always let you down. Those things are beautiful additions to life, but they are rotten gods. They're terrible gods. And, and most of us, really it ends up that we're living for ourselves. And when we just do things for ourselves, we become terrible gods too. I got an amen. We are. Because we're not God. We were made for God. And the Bible's consistent message is, it's when God is at the center of our lives. When He is in, in, in charge, that it doesn't ruin our lives. That's where we find life. Genesis chapter 2, when, when God was walking with people, He was the one calling the shots, but they had fulfillment and purpose in their lives. Uh, God gives us the opportunity to use all that He's made us to be. They were caring for this creation. Read it in Genesis 2. It was good. It's when they left Him out and said, I can find a life better than He can give me on my own without Him. Genesis 3, that's what they did. That's when things fell apart. That's when things fell apart. And right now, too, God knows that we were made for him, for our lives to orbit around him. Instead of us just living for ourselves, where we end up competing with one another. And, and at the end of the day, just dividing from one another. Because if you just live for yourself and everybody else is, it puts you at odds with everybody else. That's where wars come from. He says, If we live that way, we won't live. Instead, you've got to learn to trust that God has a plan, point one. And the issue, if you're going to find life, is finding your place in that plan. And you have to trust that God is good and that His way, though different from yours and mine, that we would choose is always going to be better. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Jeremiah 29, 11. Uh, Jeremiah was a man who didn't love a life that any one of us would have chosen, and he didn't choose it either for himself. And yet, the hard life that he lived... uh, did not keep him from real living. And, and God turns to Jeremiah and he says, Jeremiah, I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future that we're most alive when we know we're where God would have us to be, even when those times are hard, even when they're confusing, even when the people God uses around us seem to be as strange as John the Baptist was. God says, in me is sound life. And in our world, those students were saying to me, this bill of goods that the world is selling us, that it's all found in you getting something here in this world that doesn't work. Many of the modern songwriters are writing about this. Once again, my son Brandon sent me a song. He often sends me songs saying, if you're going to speak to people in our world, you have to listen to more stuff than you listen to. And this was, (laughs) he sent me a YouTube video of of, uh, Fleet Foxes. Some of you may know them. They're an indie group from Seattle. And they have a a new CD that came out a year ago called um, uh, Misunderstanding Blues. Oh, Helplessness Blues, Helplessness Blues. And the title song has this marvelous lyric. It's so thoughtful. I was raised up believing I was somehow unique. Like a snowflake, distinct among snowflakes, unique in each way you can see. And now, after some thinking, I'd say I'd rather be a functioning cog in some great machinery, something, serving something beyond me. But I don't, I don't know what that will be. I'll get back to you someday soon. You will see. Isn't that profound? It's telling us what I know is true. You and I were made for something beyond ourselves, not just to live for ourselves. We're able to be a part of something much bigger than ourselves. That's where we find life. And the most important issue I want you to know is to find that thing beyond yourself in God's plan for which he's made you. So, third and final question today. Um, Who can bring God back into his rightful place in your life? And the answer is, three of you know. So here it is. Here's the claim of the Bible. New Testament. Jesus is the only one. Who can introduce us to our place in God's plan. That's why he came. I did not come, John 10. I did not come to kill, steal, and destroy like other things. They promise you so much, they don't deliver. I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. La belle vie. That's what he came for. So let's see how he gets at it. There are two witnesses in this text. uh, People who tell us who Jesus was. One was John the Baptist. The other one was God the Father. All right. John the Baptist preaching this baptism of repentance, people coming to him from all over. You know, John the Baptist was so respected, the rich and the poor, um, uh, the well-educated and the uneducated. They loved to listen to John the Baptist. He had a big following a hundred years after Jesus. And yet the amazing testimony you read him speaking about Jesus is this one who is coming. I can baptize you for the repentance of your sins. But he is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He is going to bring God back into your lives. This one who is coming, you shouldn't be worshiping me. I I can't get the glory. This one I'm going to be pointing to. I'm not even worthy to untie the sandals of the shoes, which is the language of servanthood and slavery. In other words, John is saying, the one who is coming that I'm pointing to is when we find our lives, when we serve him and allow him to be the Lord of our lives. There's the message. Now, as powerful as that witness is, it pales in comparison to the second witness. God the Father, verse 11, this voice from heaven, declares when Jesus was baptized, This is my Son, the one I love. In Him I am well pleased. The First, when I read this, I keep thinking how beautiful that is if, we, if our fathers will say that to us. I need to call my children and tell them that because I am. But they have God the Father say that about Jesus. And essentially what he's saying is what John would say in John one eighteen, That God the Father, no one has ever seen God the Father at any time except God the Son. And He makes Him known to us. This is the one who shows us who God is. What God is like. And, and then as you read the text, you'll see that the dove descended, the Spirit of God descended like a dove upon Jesus. Do you know what that's about? What that's about is it goes back to Genesis chapter 1 where the Spirit of God was hovering on the face of the deep. That, that God was at work doing a plan and what Jesus is saying is I am the one who's come to bring God back into your plan so that that creation can be recreated. Uh, the voice is He is the one and the only one who can bring God back into our lives for He is the sinless Son of God who lived the life we should have lived but we haven't and is willing to take our place and bring God into our lives, the question always is, how how can a holy God come back into unholy people like me and you? You ever ask that question? How is He going to do that? We, we've been unholy people. How will a holy God come into my life? And the answer is that Jesus identifies with us fully, and what He has done, He gives to us. And that identification is seen in His baptism. Now, we have fuller. Theological seminary students who come to Lake Avenue Church. So I'm always intimidated by the theologians. So I think they're going to be asking this question. And this brings a huge theological question up. And since we don't have any time for huge theological questions, I can give a very brief answer. The question is, why did Jesus have to be baptized into a baptism of repentance? He'd never sinned. He didn't have anything to repent of. Do You ever ask that question? Ask it. And it's not an easy answer, but I I think it's it's pretty clear when you read the rest of the Gospel of Mark and the rest of the Gospels. The basic meaning of the word baptism means to identify with. Uh, When you are baptized, you say, my life is no longer my own. I'm baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I belong to God. I remember I baptized an older man. He was up in his 80s. And I said to him, it was back in West Virginia, Jim. I said to him, you know... I don't have to dunk you all the way under the water. I'll, I'll sprinkle you. And he said, no way. He said, um, he, "He said I want everybody to know that I belong to Jesus from head to toe. None of this sprinkling stuff. It's, it's that full identification with. And when Jesus was baptized, he was identifying fully with us. And at the end of his life, he would identify fully with us, bearing our sins upon himself. And the identification of Jesus with us was not just on the cross; it was the way He lived. And already in this early text, we see He goes into the wilderness and is tempted in every way, just like you and I are tempted. Uh, in fact, the devil tempts Him in the same ways these students talked about. Oh, you want more? In the way? You want a real life, Jesus? You need more possessions? I'll give them to you. You need more power? I'll give them to you. Need more? Um, Uh, uh, prestige and fame, I'll give it to you. And Jesus resisted it without sin. And and in fact, the very last verse, verse 13, it tells us, it throws in this phrase, he was with wild beasts, wild animals. Do you see that? Do you know what that's about? When Mark wrote this text, so many of his brothers and sisters who went to church were being seized because they were following Jesus by this crazy emperor named Nero. Nero. And those were the early days that Christians were being taken out into the public arenas and the wild beasts were set free and they just tore them from limb to limb. And what John is saying is Jesus identifies even with that. Do you know how the Hebrew writers put it? I'll just show it to you. We have a high priest. We do not have one who is unable to sympathize in our weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. So because of that, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. So the point is that Jesus is the one who can forgive the past and bring God back into our lives. Now, it brings a lot of questions. And as I've talked with people about this message all week, they said, but Pastor Greg, this, this matter of Jesus being the one who introduces me to God and to his plan for my life. But how does that play out in my life? I mean, how do I use my music gifts uh, to bring glory to God, not to myself? And and how how do I use technology? I like technology uh, to to fit into God's plan. All I can tell you is that's next week's message, so you have to come back. (laughs) And I think those questions are better than the answer that I will give. But sometimes it's good to have the right questions, don't you think? So I just want to start here. It's got to start with making sure that Jesus is the Lord of your life. Until that has happened, until you've just said, I am yours, wherever you will have me to go, Lord, finding that La Belle Vie just can't even begin to happen because that's where it all starts. We have to trust that, that He will lead us and show us how He will use those gifts that, that He has given to us. But if that's true, if Jesus is the only one who can bring it in, you can imagine that all of these other things in the world, the world, the flesh, and the devil, will war against Jesus, right? And I have found, I have found that in the world that you and I live in, we, we can talk about Jesus' teaching, and people are okay with that. We can talk about religion, sometimes. Sometimes. Sometimes people are okay with that. Uh, we, c- we can talk about spirituality, and people are really okay with that. We might even be able to, to say, as long as we don't do it too specifically, cite a couple of Bible verses in, um, in political conventions. We might even be able to do that. But the one thing we can't really just talk about is saying it's Jesus. Don't you find that to be the case? He's the stumbling block. And it's because he's the only one who will destroy these would-be givers of life. 1 John 3.8, John would say, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. That's what Mark's saying. Not just his work, but the work of anything else that pretends to be the life giver. That's why that discussion with those student leaders in Chicago is so unforgettable to me. Uh, it's a recognition to me that um, even those of us who have sensed God's call still feel these strong battles against continuing on to follow Jesus. Uh, those who are going into ministry told me that their families, even though they were churchgoers, were not very excited about them leaving medicine or law or engineering and going into the ministry. I was talking with Aaron and Christy Kilmer. They're, they're going... Uh, To carry the gospel where very few followers of Jesus are to be found. It's not where they would have chosen. Some of our very sharp missionaries with their four or five little kids are leaving this week. I think they may have already left to go. And as they were talking, we were having a wonderful, Chris and I were having a wonderful pizza with them in town. And they were talking so naturally saying, "Ah, we're so excited about this. We have found the place that God would have us to be at this point in our lives. And I stopped them for a moment and said, I want to talk about that a little bit in church Has that always come naturally to you? And they said, of course not. We're human. Uh, It's been this growing matter of learning to trust God. Christy, who's a wonderful musician, said, there was a point at which I was just so, God, you've given me this love of music, so surely you'll want me to use music. So I'll go anywhere that you'll let me use my music. And Aaron said, well, I spent some time in Germany, and I really felt at home there, so surely you'll have me go to Germany. And then one after another, they found that those weren't even the questions. God may have used those times in Germany. God may use her gift of music. But the question is, Lord, you have made me. Where would you have me to be in your plan? And so they're going to a tough place. But if you meet them, they are alive. If I've ever seen La Belle V, it's when I meet the Kilmers. And I'm not saying to you... That every follower of Jesus is going to be a missionary or a pastor. I thought I'd get a hallelujah there. <laughs> no, no, no. When we find our place in God's plan, it's all over the place. He sends some to be lawyers. He sends some to be mechanics. He sends some to be plumbers. He sends many into the public schools to live for Him there. He, I've been praying that God would send some from our church into the political arena who are fully committed to His ways and to His plans, and who have a a God-centered worldview. Have you ever prayed that? And maybe you're the one who's supposed to respond to that. God sends us all over the place, but the beginning question is, who is the Lord of your life? Our lives have been made to orbit around Him. And I'll tell you, even when we say, yes, my my life is yours, Lord. I'm going to follow you here. My sins, will you forgive me? He says, yes. Here's my present and future. I give it to you. That there will still come times where you feel temptations. Put other things in God's place. There will still be many times where things are very confusing. Students, sometimes you'll have such smart people telling you this can't possibly be true. They did that in Jesus' days too. But I can only tell you that it's in full surrender to Jesus that you and I find our lives. That's the good life according to the gospel of Mark. May we find it to his glory. Let me lead us in prayer.